Today's episode features Jeff Whitlock. Jeff is an entrepreneur, former consultant, and happily married father of two sweet kids. We discuss his childhood growing up as the son of a teacher, his time studying music, economics, and business strategy in college. He worked at McKinsey, Vivint, and several startups. We discuss the fear of failing, enjoying the journey, something called Final Five Primaries and Ranked Choice Voting that I thought was fascinating, entering tech as a non-tech person, mentors, being wrong, lessons he's learning as a dad, and the best book to give virgins who are getting married. (laughs) I think you'll love this episode with Jeff, but please let me know what you think. If you have certain questions you'd like me to ask future guests or any other feedback, message me on LinkedIn or write a review on one of the podcast platforms and I'll find it. Thank you. Without further ado, let's meet Jeff Whitlock. Jeff, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, happy to happy to chat. Yeah, man, exciting to have you on Dad Conversations as the uh, second overall guest. You're number two overall draft pick on uh, on Dad Conversations. So I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, still good money for for uh, second overall draft pick of the NBA. Unfortunately, you're not gonna get anything, but uh, <laughs> I will get a good, uh, enjoyable time talking with you out of this. All right. Um, so how, first of all, it's been a while since we, uh, we were in school together eight or nine years ago. Um, how, how's the last eight, nine years treated you, man? How you been? I've, I've been fantastic, you know, uh, definitely life up and downs, you know, have been through them, but generally I'm really happy with, with life. And sometimes I feel a little guilty when people ask me that question, because, you know, we're in the middle of this historic pandemic and a lot of people are really suffering. And for me, through many factors which are not of my own, uh, not all my own doing, I'm doing quite well at this time. My family's been safe and healthy, so can't complain. Yeah, man, that's good. I can, I can relate to that. Like, um, you know, when people ask me like, how are you doing, it's like honestly, I I feel bad for people that lost their job. Um, feel bad for anyone who's sick, obviously, you know, or passed right. away, or, or knows someone who's um who's passed away. But like, I've enjoyed having extra downtime, you know, just unstructured time to play around it does get uh, drive me nuts sometimes when the kids are like bouncing off the walls and uh yeah. a little too energetic but um but it is overall yeah. I feel like it's been uh, we've, i've been fortunate it's been a positive thing yeah that's been the t- the biggest challenge has just been uh kind of child care both me and my wife working from home me doing my startup and rachel having a full-time job and just luckily we have we've we have uh some help that that we definitely rely on, but it's still sort of tricky to focus when you have kids coming in and out of the office all day long. But I love it at the same time. It has positives too. Yeah, totally. That's got to be tough. Um, well, Jeff, you make uh, regularly make very insightful posts on LinkedIn, and I enjoy reading them and following them. So, like in a way, it feels like we've kept in touch over all the time, uh, <laughs> even though you know we haven't done been in great touch but um i anyway you're on top of my mind. i i enjoy it um listening and and uh i have always found value in what you've had to say so i thought man it'd be cool to, to hear your story so um, i appreciate you reading them yeah yeah man um so with that let's um let's kind of start out origin story you know just general um where'd you grow up what were you 
what were you like as a kid? What were your interests? Um, what were you like as a teenager? And what was what was little Jeff like? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, so I grew up in in Mesa, Arizona, um, until I was about twelve, and then I moved kind of to a more what was then rural Gilbert, Arizona, which is now nothing but suburbia. But at the time, it was like really rural. But uh, yeah, so growing growing up in Mesa, grew up on in a tiny little house. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, what did I love? I loved I played lots of basketball after school with my friends. Uh, we did like we just kind of like my my uh, my mom what would was what would now be called a free range parent, right? So she just kind of let me, you know, as long as I got my homework and my chores done, it was sort of like go out and go play with friends and play cops and robbers around the school and go exploring. And sometimes I shudder to think about some of the things I I did. <laughs> like yeah. I actually I actually like there's this memory I constantly go back to because like. I just think of how stupid it was where like I, I went, I crawled through, they had like these like irrigation canals and some of it was, some of it was like above ground and some of it was below ground. And so there's one time where I crawled through like probably like 200 yards of irrigation tunnel, just this tiny tunnel. And like, I'm like, man, if water had just started coming in there, who knows? Oh, but that was probably, goodness. that was probably the only like incredibly dangerous thing I did. <laughs> all in all, I think I'm very much in the free range parenting camp because I feel like that just childhood ex exploration was awesome the other thing i did a lot of was reading um i used to get made fun of at school for reading so much because i would sometimes skip recess and 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 just read my mom just at a very early age sort of instilled the love in reading in me she used to she used to do, she wasn't like incredibly consistent in the, uh, doing this throughout the years but she used to have this system where it was like for every hour i wanted to watch tv i had to read a book for an hour and i had to like tell her what i read before i could watch tv and so that just at first, it was like, you know, I just did it so I could watch the TV. But over time, it sort of developed that love of reading in me just through practice. And so I used to just carry a book around with me at school and kids would make fun of me. But at the same time, I would play sports. So I sort of had like this jock, you know, like athletic side of me. And then this like nerdy academic side of me, which has always been a part of my core personality. That's good, man. That's good. Um, so, yeah, I've I've been trying to get my kids into reading a little more, especially with COVID. I was like. I went online and uh, I went on Amazon and, and bought all like my favorite books from the late nineties when I was a kid. And uh, nice. What's on the list? So, um, monster, some of the, uh, goosebumps books, nice. Um, the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, my, um, my nine-year-old, he just finished the Hobbit and is like starting to get into the Lord of the Rings. And he's like, man, these chapters are way longer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a big step up, dude. It's, it's like, yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. it's like the same and it's not at all. Yeah. And it's like the Hobbit like moves at a pretty good pace. It's the Lord of the Rings. I love it, but it's like, you'll spend a page and a half of him describing some Valley that they're walking through. It's just very lots of imagery. Yeah. 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 I remember when I read it in sixth grade and then I read it again in ninth grade. And when I, and as a ninth grader, I was like, man, I didn't understand like hardly anything as a sixth grader. And then I read it again, my senior year, I think after the, like the final movie came out. And and then I was like, man, when I read this in ninth grade, I didn't understand any of it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, he'll pick up what he picks up. We'll see. But um, he's excited. So, so basketball, uh, in playing basketball, running around, free range parent. What were um, what were your hobbies and interests as a teenager? Mainly sports and 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 school kind of continued. Yeah, I um. I played uh, my freshman year of high school. I actually did four sports, which was which was just murderous because I I grew up uh, doing swim team. That was probably the sport that I was the best at. But I had always wanted to play football. So in Arizona, swimming 
and football are in the same season. So wow. I uh, I did I woke up at like 5 a.m. and did swim practices before school, and then I did uh, football practice after school. So I so that was awesome. But then I eventually that sort of died out as I made the varsity team in in football. I chose football over swimming. Not sure if that was a great decision because <laughs> I probably had a little bit more of a future ahead of me in uh, swimming than I did football. But you know, football had the sort of social status yeah, around it. When you're in high school, it's like it's way cooler to be on the football team. Coming from someone who uh, a band nerd, by the way, I wasn't even on football. <laughs> like tall, yeah. skinny, weak, and slow, and there's no position for that. <laughs> hey, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You. I, that's a surprise to me. You wouldn't guess it now, man. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, so, tall and fat. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wasn't mean that. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I. Uh, so I loved. I loved sports. Did quite a few sports. I did, like I said, swimming, football, a little bit of wrestling, track and field tried my hand at pole vaulting but then like the funny thing about pole vaulting was like it was i was pretty good until my senior year when i just like bulked up to be like my senior year of football and like trying to be a pole vaulter at like 200 pounds just wasn't doing it <laughs> it's like well, they didn't have a pole that was like heavy enough for me or whatever so didn't work out my senior year but it was fun um what else did i do yeah still lots of reading um academics were really important to me did pretty well academically um i spent a lot of time also playing guitar Guitar was sort of like my emotional outlet. I taught myself how to play starting like seventh or eighth grade and just kind of played it through high school. Definitely a good one for when you're in college with the girls. Yeah, that's uh, I would not, I would be lying if I would say that wasn't part of the motivation. But funnily enough, my freshman year of uh, college, so I went to Occidental uh, before I transferred to BYU to Occidental, which is a, a small liberal arts private college in LA. It's claimed to fame is that Obama went there. Um, okay. I was going to yeah. say, like, that name sounds familiar, but I don't know anything about it. Maybe <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a very small school. It's a great school, but very small, and that's its big kind of – we'll put it on the map with Obama. And what's funny is actually I went to one of Obama's early political rallies when I was attending there because he was, he was like, so popular because it's like, oh, my goodness, our alumni is running for president. And so I went to one of his rallies in the early, early days of his campaigning for in 2008 because I think I, I think I went to the rally in 2007. It was like really early, early Obama campaigning days. It's pretty cool. Anyway, anyway, I t- all to say that I went to this, I went to this small school, Occidental, and my original major was music composition. Hmm. I would not <laughs> have changed for music composition. <laughs> I know, right? Like the business guru, man. Yeah, so you, things change, man. It's kind of funny. I did, I did really enjoy music composition, and something that maybe if I had another life, I would have went down, but. Uh, decided after the mission to, to change paths. Yeah, they say, like, uh, at least my wife is, uh, references studies. I've never fact-checked her on this, but apparently <laughs> people who, you know, who kids who grow up doing music tend to perform well uh, across the board and, you know, helps develop different sides of your brain. And um, I don't know if, I mean, I think that sounds plausible, but also it's like maybe it's having the type of parent who would make you do music also. Yeah. Is, as po- but either way, I mean, it's a good thing to, in general, probably to put your kids in some kind of music. Yeah, I'm not the most familiar with the literature, the, or at least the most recent literature. But the one thing that I, 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 I understand to be true is that it seems to be pretty causal is uh, getting involved in music does help with sort of emotional uh, intelligence. Hmm. Seems to be some pretty good research around that. But we can edit it out if it's wrong. We can fact check our, <laughs> this. Both we just edit out this whole segment. It's all BS. We got to screw up a lot harder than that for me to have to go back through and start making edits. <laughs> all right. Fair um, 
So, all right, let's talk about uh, your father figures, uh, your dad or other father figures. Um, tell me a little about them, and then maybe if you have a, a favorite story or a moment you experienced that you think listeners might be interested in, could be, you know, something funny or a lesson learned or, you know, whatever you want to share. Yeah, so, I mean, main father figure in my life is obviously my dad, uh, very, very engaged, involved father my whole life. Um, even now continues to be so. Um, and uh, just to really, uh, my dad, he uh, he's an incredibly, incredibly good father. He, um, right now he's a teacher, but he sort of um, had an interesting path a journey that touched many different points. Um, so in my earlier life, he was, he worked as like in, in hospitals, actually, as a, like a nursing tech. Uh, he was like a nurse technician, I think was the, was the, his official title and he worked in psych wards and so he always uh he always had interesting experiences working in psych wards he was kind of like you know he did do medical functions but he was also the big strong guy who played football who who like if anybody in the psych ward went crazy he would like be the person to tackle them so <laughs> um really hard worker so he became he became a you know so he, he did that for a while and then when i when i was in uh in seventh grade he actually became a teacher and he started teaching at my school so that was a interesting transition where it's like, oh man, my dad's now my sci my history teacher. Oh, this is awesome. So you took a class. I with did. Him. Yeah, it's kind of awkward, but oh, wow. and he loved teaching, and it was it was cool. Just I mean, at the time, I didn't probably appreciate it, but looking back, I appreciate it. Um, so he became a teacher. Has taught since. He teaches like social studies and history, um, and just a really really hard worker. So we, uh, you know, he he's the kind of guy like something breaks, he fixes it. He probably has spent more hours under a car than he has watching movies in his life. Uh, wow. Just like, just definitely handyman. Did lots of did lots of work to support a family. We had seven kids in my family, and so and it's you no know, like teaching is not not awesome with regards to salary. That's something that, by the way, not to get political in this episode, but geez, teachers, we do not pay them enough um, no. at all. So, you know, and I appreciated growing up as a son of a teacher. It's like. You know, the, my dad just had to work like three jobs to provide for a family, and it's it's crazy. It's like, do we really want our teachers having two extra jobs? Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. But anyway, yeah, my so. mom was my mom was a teacher, and there was a a year where it was just me, my mom, and my sister uh, before my mom remarried, and uh, and we were pretty broke. Just uh, just you know, <laughs> two kids really on on the teacher yeah. side. I can't imagine seven, dude. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, story. So you asked about a story. So um. Probably a lot I could tell, but one that comes to mind that's pretty interesting is um, my uh, going back to when my dad worked in the in these uh, psych wards. Uh, so one day my dad gets home and he's just like not feeling very well, and I'm like, "Hey, dad, what's wrong?" He's like, "Oh yeah, I got I got kind of beat up," <laughs> and he's just like kind of kind of looks just kind of haggard, and he's like, "I'm like, what happened?" He's like, "This guy just bit my chest," and he pulls up his shirt and he's got like teeth marks in his chest, and it's just like purple yellowish greenish bluish like the nastiest thing i've ever seen this dude just bit him in the chest through his clothing and like sunk into his wounds. like dad you got to go to the doctor get that checked out like didn't you work at a freaking hospital didn't they take care of you uh, yeah crazy he had lots of funny stories we probably can't i at risk of being politically incorrect i won't go into too many more of those yeah. stories but uh that is pretty interesting yeah yeah no worries um, what would you say when you look at, think of your dad overall as a father, what's one thing where you're like, man, he nailed this aspect of fatherhood. I mean, there's a lot of things. I, I mean, I, not everything there, you know, as a, as a, as a father, I sort of 
recycle about what my dad did and where he nailed and where I'd like to maybe do a little better. But uh, I think so. He but he nailed a lot of places. And one that he just like knocked out of the park would be he uh, he taught me the value of hard work. You know, um, by example, but also by making me <laughs> do hard work. We uh, so we, I, I mentioned how we lived up. We lived in um, kind of a more suburban or suburban community in Mesa. Um, at growing up till the age of 12. And then once I turned 12, we moved to a more rural community. Um, so part of the reasons why my parents wanted to move to a more rural community was to help us work more. <laughs> so we bought like an acre and a half of land uh, with, a, I think we had like 50 orange trees. Um, and so, you know, like basically every Saturday I, had, I was spending four to six hours outside doing work. Like the 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 land they bought was like not leveled so we were doing leveling building chicken coops building fences planting and rototilling gardens um just all sorts of work you know trimming the trees mowing an acre and a half of lawn it was just like a lot of work to be done and so uh, my dad was out there doing it with us every saturday so i i look back on that time i'm not sure i'll do it for my kids because i don't know if i have the, <laughs> honestly i don't know if i have it in me to like work outside that much but uh my dad did and i, and I looked I'm really grateful for all that work that he taught me how to do. Just like, you know, when I did not want to do, it was like the last thing in the world that I wanted to do. He still sort of made me get out and do it. And not just made me, he never like forced me, never, you know, but like just, you know, if your dad is going to go out and do it and you're like, you better go out and do it. So just kind of leading by example. That's good. Hey, you're a better son than me, man. I was all about, <laughs> like, keep the cartoons on until they turn them off, you know? <laughs> I'm uh, sure there was some of that too. I'm sure some of like you're not gonna watch any TV till this uh, till this gets done. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting thing of the perspective, like when you look back on it versus um, now. You know, when my kids aren't like uh, the most uh, enterprising little workers, and I'm like, you know what? When I was nine, I was I kind of a, a turd. <laughs> so I'll give them a pass. You know. Definitely. So, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. No, that's cool with uh, all the orange trees and and um you know working on plants and stuff i saw a youtube video recently of this guy who's got this like killer I, it's i don't know garden's not the right word i mean it's like a everything he's got all these fruit trees he's like literally lives off of the land in arizona he's got one acre and he has like everything uh i guess it's so much sun and as long as you you know he, he like recycles yeah, all this rainwater nice. yeah and it's like this like little oasis that is taken over all every inch of his land it's pretty cool we uh we also had animals, so we had uh pigs, chickens, and goats. Chickens were nice, you know, ate the ate the uh, eggs, and uh you know we had like we had a huge chicken coop and like, some like thirty or forty chickens, so we always had lots of eggs. And um, we never really, I, we did uh the pigs and goats. We never really like uh, were not so much practical animals. We did they're like 4-H. I'm not sure if you're familiar with 4-H, where you kind of go show the animals. So we sold them. I don't think we ever like slaughtered our own animals and ate them. We did our chickens a couple times. My mom wanted me to have that experience, which was not fun, by the way. Uh, <laughs> like my mom's like, if you're gonna be uh, if you're gonna eat meat, you got to know what it's like to kill an animal, which I think was a good lesson. And hated doing that. The other thing I hated was dehorning a goat, dude. Do not do not dehorn a goat. Oh, how do you even do that? I don't think we did it right. Like we had like this, <laughs> we had like this old school veterinarian guy in our in our uh, church who's just like this old like old cowboy who's 60 years old who's who like was the veterinarian and so my mom calls him up can you help us dehorn this goat like this this goat's charging kids <laughs> with these like sharp horns and so he comes and he's like all right this is how you dehorn a goat so he takes like this like this like it's like a wire with two wooden handles 
and you sort of like put it behind the horn and then you just saw it back and forth rubbing the wire and it's like it's oh, terrible as animal rights activists will not love me but i've since repented and become a vegan uh but like <laughs> but oh. seriously dude, like oh terrible experience you're, you're like just like sawing the the horn off and like blood is coming out of it and it's like oh and then you cauterize oh. it no not fun no wonder you're vegan dude yeah dude <laughs> <laughs> um all right so um well, let's shift gears on to, uh, you know, education and career. So you started out at Occidental looking into music. Um, talk to me about what where you went from there as far as um, scholastic interests and then career. We don't, you know, if you want to go step by step on career, you know, kind of what you overview of what you did and where, why you changed or just kind of hit the high points, uh, however you want to take it. But you know, just give us a um, for the strangers out there who are interested in a little bit about Jeff. What, what's the uh, school and and uh, what's your career has been like to date? Yeah, maybe I'll just hit the high point. So, um, like I mentioned, freshman year music composition. I really just love music. That was just kind of a passion thing. I wasn't thinking very much at the time, like how do you turn it into a career or per, or other types of things. Which I'm not saying that that should be your primary consideration, but it was mostly just like what's the most interesting to me at the moment as a 19 year old. And so that's why I started studying. Um, then I uh, then I served a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in uh, in in West Africa. So I served in uh, Sierra Leone and Liberia, and that was a life-changing experience. Changed my perspective on lots of things, um, but it definitely changed my perspective about what I wanted to do professionally. Um, it made me want to study something that would give me a little bit more skills to uh, to you know. Um, Maybe not like, you know, maybe this was a bit of a grandiose idea at the time, but like just kind of be able to have more of an impact. Um, I saw that in those countries that like, you know, uh, they have such rich cultures and heritage and amazing music, it, but it was sort of like economic structures that prevented them and governance structures that prevented lots of people from, um, you know, uh, achieving the quality of life that they would want for themselves and their kids. And so that got me a lot more interested in more economics and government as a type of as a type of thing I wanted to study and learn in college after I got back. So I got back, changed my degree to economics. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but just knew that like from my experiences in Africa that I wanted to understand, you know, how is how is wealth created, um, how is prosperity created, um, and what levers can government pull, what lever can private sector pull to do that. And it was just something really interesting to me. So I studied economics, learned some of those things, by the way, learned a lot of other stuff that was unrelated to those things. Um, Economics is a fun degree. Uh, and so I studied economics. Um, uh, at the time, I thought maybe I would do law or work in government. Um, but then um, I decided to minor in business. And, you know, honestly, the reason why I wanted to minor in business was because my mom had signed me up for a few business classes uh, <laughs> while I was on my mission. And so I took like a couple of business classes my first semester back. And I was like, I have the credits. So I might as well put them towards a major. And uh, this is sort of like the, the when I th you think about sort of the arbitrariness of some of the early decisions you make in your life, it's just yeah. it's hilarious. Like they just like the thinking is just not that deep, to be honest. No. Like, yeah, we do like major <laughs> career changes. Like this path heads that direction. This one heads like totally different direction. And then you're like, well, yeah, like the wind's blowing. I'll go this way. You know, like I know. It's, it's so crazy. I mean, maybe that's just part of life, but I think back on it, like the lack of depth of thought and I was like, wow. But anyway, so like, so all I remember is one day I was like sitting in the, in a locker room, like 
and I saw one of my econ TAs and I asked him, what minor are you doing? He's like, I do the strategy minor. I'm like, oh, why do you do the strategy minor? And he's like, oh, it's a great program. And all I remember of him telling me was that like, it was the only minor you had to apply for, which in my mind was like prestigious. So like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that literally was like the extent of my thinking. So uh, don't tell Professor Bryce and uh, Jeff Dyer and all that this, by the way. <laughs> but anyway, so I decided to do the strategy minor. And then that sort of got me thinking about doing consulting as like a way to sort of kick the can down the road as far as like what path to go on with my life. And, um, uh, you know, there's other things that were interesting about consulting too, which the prestige, you know, sort of oh, like what sure. people did. And, but like, honestly, what was really exciting to me was just the opportunity to sort of explore things without having to feel like I was picking uh, a path, uh, which is sort of a lame reason to do something, but you know, optionality has value. So I never thought about that. Like as someone who also was interested in consulting for a while and did an internship and in consulting, yeah. I, I didn't think about that and that, uh, benefit of going into consulting. That's a good one. Yeah. That's honestly was kind of the main reason. And, and, uh, another, before I decided to do consulting, I'd actually thought I was just going to go to law school, um, which was another sort of different way of sort of delaying decision because I was like, Oh, maybe I want to do, you know, maybe I want to do, um, sort of uh, development law, or maybe I want to get into uh, government or whatever. And so I was like, law school kind of maybe helped down that path. Didn't really think about it that clearly. So I took the LSAT, did did great on the LSAT, like could have could have done the law school thing, but luckily decided uh, last minute, I was like, oh, I really don't want to do law school. And so sort of like by process of elimination, the only other thing at the time, which I felt like I could be competitive at, and I sort of was working towards because of the strategy minor was consulting. So I get into consulting, I go to McKinsey, um, and which like, I kind of feel bad saying it that way. Cause so many people are like, that's like their goal from their freshman year of college and they work like four years. But for me, I kind of didn't make the decision until midway through the summer before my senior year. That's when I was like, okay, I'm going to really get into consulting. And, you know, for honestly, just luck and, and, and kindness of other people got me to be competitive in the interview process. I had a, I just random luck. I was in the same church, uh, I was in the same ward, as an, a guy who had just uh, done his internship at McKinsey and wow. was heading there in, in the fall. <laughs> and he was in my ward. And so he pra started practicing cases with me. James, a uh, super nice guy, was very kind doing that. Um, and then obviously, like I was in the strategy program and so got a lot of help from like Morgan Davis and some of those guys. And so was able to kind of get competitive fast and uh, got a job in consulting, did consulting, had a great experience, kind of a random walk, did a bunch of different projects and energy, uh, government, mining, manufacturing strategy. Um, then <laughs> decide up. You can, you can text Morgan and talk some trash, uh, tell him he's, he's going to be on the podcast, but, uh, oh, nice. he, he wasn't a number two overall. He, draft he was, what draft pick is he going to be? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I might make him wait till the second round, man. <laughs> I love Morgan, by the way. He'll be a good, he'll be probably a better episode. Um, yeah. The other way to think about this is you just want to get the duds out of the way while so as you're like building your no, skills. Oh, no <laughs> way, kidding. dude. Not at all. I'm just, I'm just kidding. Let's start off with a bang, man. Uh, so, yeah. So just kind of did the consulting thing. Then I decided I wanted to get into tech. Um, my kind of rationale in that regard was I sort of I sort of saw that every company was becoming a tech company, whether they knew it or not. Um, and just... It felt when something. Did, when was this? This is you're talking about like after going to McKenzie. Yeah, this is like 2014. Okay. 2014. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I was gonna say that's a pretty profound insight for if you're still talking about the college years. But um, no, no, for, that was like for, two years. For a McKenzie consultant. Okay, I see what you're saying. 
Yeah, and and the thing was is like what's funny is I don't know why, but like I just I used computers a lot as a kid and I dinked around stuff, but I just never really considered myself as a technical person. It's kind of funny how we like label ourselves and then we let those labels define us because mm. I don't know why. Like my I had some cousins who were like super great programmers and they just intimidated me talking the lingo and the jargon. And I always just like, oh man, I'm not a technical person, I'm a football player. Although like, you know, when you look look at my academic performance i for sure if i would have just spent the time could have learned it there's nothing magical about it but yeah if really... you don't know football and you walk in the room and and you're like wait what's what's a uh you know a safety or something it's like that doesn't yeah. make sense it, you know what's it what's a three four nickel you know it's like that's like yeah, nonsense. yeah yeah not not that not that uh not that football's harder to learn or on the same academic level as computer programming but it's funny how you just sort of like find yourself in these niches and anyway all that to say is that like i felt i'd always felt sort of intimidated by tech um and then at the same time i felt like the whole world was going that way and so i was like i do not want to become i want to become a leader in tech and so i decided to get into tech i was lucky enough to get a job at vivint smart home working with matt iring um kind of started in a role as his chief of well, i kind of did a few little things early on though like a strategy type roles and then i became his chief of staff um, did that for a little while, then. And what just, is Vivint, by the way, for those who I imagine most people may know McKenzie. What is what is a Vivint? That's um, a company that I know has uh, grown tremendously. But uh, for anyone who's not familiar with it, what is it? Yeah, so they are. Uh, they started out as a, just a kind of an old, quote quote unquote, old school security company. Competed with the likes of ADT, um, and then I think in 2012 they got bought by Blackstone, which is a big private equity firm. Blackstone invested a lot in trying to make them a modern smart home company. Mm -hmm. um, and so I joined in like 2014, right around the time they were building out their product development capabilities. And real, like they bought a company called 2Gig and were kind of bringing in engineering and product management into house. They had a bunch of Nike product managers. And so um, I kind of got there to, at, a, at a time that I consider was fortunate. Um, probably maybe better moves I could have made at the time, like joining Qualtrics might have been a better move. <laughs> Um, if they had some stock for you. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> They're pretty, yeah. Uh, different story. Anyway, um, so uh, good time to join. I was working with Matt Iring. Matt Iring was a really great mentor. He was uh, he started a, a consulting firm called InnoSight with Clayton Christensen. So he helped oh. teach me a lot of stuff around jobs to be done, really trying to understand sort of consumer, the insights, why, what's causing them to use your products and sort of help me start thinking in that with that lens. I found it a pretty useful lens. Um, but I wanted to get out of like being a being a chief of staff. It was awesome. And I had was involved in some really interesting uh, senior level conversations, you know, preparing documents for the Blackstone board meetings and stuff like that. So a pretty senior role. But I wanted to like do something, you know, I like like I was now kind of three like three years in my career and had only just made decks. <laughs> Yeah, and, and you're probably um, amazing at PowerPoint, but wanted, yeah. yeah, I get it. Wanted to like do something and build something, so I, so I uh, was lucky enough to to get to move into a product management position, and so I did product management for the rest of my time there. Was fortunate enough to work on two project products. When I left, I was leading all of Vivint's app. So Vivint had like an app with about a million customers. And so that was like a pretty nice product management role, which like- That was your tech experience, bro. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it was managing awesome. Right into the deep end and managing the app. <laughs> yeah, that was really fun. So managed the app. Then I left and did a startup in Uganda, which was just like, a, a, I think Michelle Obama in her book, uh, Becoming calls them swerves, like taking a life swerve. I wanted to get back to Africa 
um, have that experience for myself and for my wife. And so I joined a startup out there, which was a ride sharing startup um, that uh, did motorcycle taxis. So think of it like Uber, but it's like little motorcycle taxis. Um, I joined as their head of product, helped them launch their first big version of their app, um, helped them grow it a little bit. And then while we were living in Uganda, my wife got pregnant and kind of carried our baby to term. And we decided to come back to the U.S. to have our first child. Uh, at that point, that's when I had, had the startup bug in me and have been kind of working on startups since then. And uh, had one, had like a couple false starts. With Startups are like, the path is so nonlinear. It's so funny going from like McKenzie, which is I think is like the most linear. It's like the process at McKenzie is just so dialed down. It's like, these are the seven steps and this is how we solve every case to going now in my career. It's like super nonlinear. I had a couple false starts on my on a couple startups. I worked on one, got it pretty far, but I've recently just um, kind of uh, divested it, I guess you'd say. I found someone else to run it and um, and kind of run it as an independent business and then recently pivoted it to a, to a brand new startup. So okay. that's my career journey in a, in a that's awesome. long of a time for a podcast. That's I appreciate you sharing all that. By the way, what's it like as a married couple, you know, two young Americans going to Uganda? Do you speak the language? Do you learn the language while you're there? Um, and it, what is that like to go and start a start working at a small business there? Or yeah, I mean, business? it was a great experience. The nice, you know, the great thing about uh, the inter, I, I don't know if I'd call it great, but fortunate thing for people who speak English is that, uh, well, well, Africa is an incredibly diverse place lingu linguistically. Um, a lot of countries, people are really good at speaking English um, because okay. you know, the, because of the English, uh, the uh, colonialism, English colonialism. So uh, in the big cities, people speak great English. So no, you don't have to learn the language. It's fun to pick up a little bit on the tribal dialects. So we learned a little bit. Uh, the current um, LLC my wife and I have that we do investments through is called Tugende, which is uh, which is um, Luganda, which is one of the languages in Uganda that says "Let's go," <laughs> so okay. our business is called Tugende, and we love it, and because it, it means "Let's go." Um, but yeah, no, you don't have to pick up a language. It's super friendly people. Um, obviously, like there's things kind of some health and safety things you got to be smart around, but it's was was a very amazing place, and uh, business environment was challenging <laughs> to say the least. Like lots of, you know, just just lots of things, you know, business differences in sort of business culture that I was kind of maybe a little too slow to pick up on lack of infrastructure, but overall it was just a fantastic experience. And I'm really, you know, hopeful for lots of these up and coming emerging economies in Africa. I think they're going to start doing pretty amazing things. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, I, I uh, think back to my time when I was in college, I feel like I was itching to go into entrepreneurship. I knew it's like I can solve problems, I can get things done, and I can get paid doing it. I want to own the company or, or at least have a big equity stake. Um, you, you worked at some phenomenal companies, were mentored, learned a ton, and then went into entrepreneurship. What are your thoughts on the, the journey um, for someone who's entrepreneurially minded while they're in college um do you have any recommendation there uh, on, on with regards uh, to like do you dive in or dive into dive into yeah. a startup of your your own or or start at someone else's startup or go work for a big company and get mentored and learn process what are your thoughts on that yeah you know what's funny uh do you know jonathan Wong by chance 
I don't think so. He'd be great for this podcast, by the way. But he he just wrote like a pretty very thoughtful uh, blog post on this that I think would do way more justice than I could ever do for her. But you know, I think I know I know I'm going to hedge here and just say it sort of depends. Um, I think here's my here's my kind of there's a trade off, right? So the I think kind of the the key trade off there is um, uh, with starting right out of school, you're going you're going to basically um, you're going to trade off mentorship and um, and sort of more structured learning for um, potentially like broader exposure and um, maybe the opportunity to take risk when you're it's easier to take risks. Um, whereas uh, if you go to big companies, it's yes, um, you're going to learn, you're going to get mentorship, uh, you're going to get um, all those benefits. But at the same time, I think it becomes harder and harder to take the risks because you just life happens. You have kids. You get into a house, um, and so I feel like I feel like probably objectively speaking, I even saw some data on this. So like you know, entrepreneurs who start companies in their 30s are much more likely to be successful than ones who started in their 20s. I think that there's like a number of studies that show that. So I think objectively speaking, you're probably in a better spot. You have you have more assets to deploy, whether it's skills, book of business, right. network. Not money. just money, but but yeah. all that you bring yeah. with you as a more you know older, wiser person. Yeah, totally. But that being said, I think it's harder to do. It's just a lot of people don't do it. So I think I think it really depends. I think doing it right out of school, you know, is if it's something that you, you know, if it's something that you're passionate about and you just believe really strongly in it, I would do it. I'm, if in the absence of like, I guess the way I would say it is like, if there's a business that you just like cannot, like you can't imagine not doing, do it and don't let the fear of being an experience stop you. But I'm not sure that I would like force myself to start a startup after because you just want to start a startup. Like that to me doesn't seem like the smartest thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I I will say that after working at a um, large tech company for is it, uh, going on four years now, I see, I now see tremendous value in the structure and the um, just general lesson. Like there's so many little things that you can't pick up on unless you're there, like that you can, mm -hmm. that you won't get at a startup. Cause like I went to a smaller company and I did a lot of great things that I think someone who's early in career at a big company wouldn't have the opportunity or like the long yeah. reach to do. But yeah. when you're at a small company, you're there um, especially joining someone else's company, um, if you get equity or not, but you're there to perform, you know, they're, they're not bringing you in to like mentor you and develop you. Whereas I look at in my current role, like, um, in my previous role, just the mentorship that I had and the, like the people who I could turn to and gladly help and who have been through this exact problem and can yeah. uh, answer your questions and the ones that you're, the questions you're not thinking of asking, you know, they can help with too. So I don't know. I, and it's like, I, I've, I've thought about going back into entrepreneurship, but I'm like, man, it's, they make it too easy working at a big company. Like, you know, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. a great, it's such a good, um, work life balance and everything. So I'm, I'm torn cause I feel like I'm an entrepreneur at heart, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, what I will say is I will say that um, doing your own business is much harder than I thought it would be. Um, you know, everyone says it's hard, but it's sort of one of those things where it's like until you do it, you don't really know yeah. how hard it is. And it's hard in ways you wouldn't expect. Um, and the other thing I'll say is like some of the skills are not as transferable as I assumed. Like definitely some of the skills are transferable and I appreciate what I learned. Like, you know, kind of like the basic toolkit of like, 
you know, this is how you write a structured email. This is how you plan your day. This is how you follow up with people. This is how, you know, you do some basic analytics to do your runway modeling. Like this is how, like those skills are very transferable, but the actual like process of doing an early stage startup uh, is not the most transferable. And there's, there's a different kind of way of thinking that I just kind of have to learn. Like the funny thing is, is like, I, I think like at a big business, you're oftentimes like, op- do you want me to stop for a second? Sorry, my mic or my uh, uh, my headphones, uh, headphones are be- ble- ble- beeping at me. Anyway, I just plugged them in, so carry on. Sorry about that. Yeah, um, basically, I think the thing that's interesting is like at big companies, I think you think very, you think analytically, and what that means is like you basically are constantly trying to think of the optimal decision, and typically that's the right way to think because you have the resources to go after what's optimal. Um, in startups, you tep- you don't always want to go what's optimal. It's more of like a sort of an inward outward thinking where it's like, what do I have right in front of me? And what's the best step given the steps that are right in front of me um, or the resources or the options? And so you end up making a lot of suboptimal decisions, but it's the right thing to do because it's like moving you forward. Um, uh, so that's the interesting, like, for example, like your team, like at, a, at if you're working at Cisco, like you can pay the best engineer $300,000 and you can wait to find the best engineer. Whereas like at a startup, like, you know, I need to just, I'm going to get the 10 candidates and those are my only 10 candidates and I just need to pick the best one, even if he, this candidate's not an optimal decision. So this kind of, that kind of was like that kind of way of thinking. Uh, I think they call it effectuation. Someone's trying to like brand that way of thinking um, is something that's like really not intuitive to me and something I had to learn. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so if we shift into mentors, any, any particular mentors that you would want to mention? I know you mentioned one that at, um, at Vivint, but, um, any, anything, uh, how did you get connected with them and what ways have they been helpful? Uh, I think there's a broad perspective on what some people would call a mentor. How would you define a mentor and, and, uh, any thoughts for, for the, someone out there who maybe is thinking, I don't have great mentors in my life. What should I be looking for? How can I connect with them? Anything on that topic? Yeah, I mean, mentorship is something that uh, I think I've been better at doing than receiving. It's only, um, you know, it's only kind of in the last two to three years, maybe four years that I've really like realized, man, I got up my game of on getting mentorship. You know, I had mentors, but it was sort of always in the form of my manager. Um which was good. You know, when I had good managers, the mentor, it was awesome. But I, but now that I don't have a manager, it's like, man, I need to find mentors that are sort of personal relationships that I can carry through multiple jobs. Yeah. Um, and I'm fortunate enough where I've been able to have quite a few of people have been very generous towards me and, and given me that mentorship. But I, you know, I kind of find like you asked me, what is a mentor? I sort of think a mentor can even be a friend. It's sort of anyone who has, who you're close enough with where you can, bring problems to them and talk through problems with them. They don't necessarily have to, like, I think sometimes we over-formalize the relationship. Like, they don't have to be called your mentor. Uh, They can be a friend, you know, it can be your manager. But as long as it's someone who, you know, you're close enough to where you can be, you don't even need to be close to, but where you feel comfortable sharing problems with them candidly and listening to their advice. And they're also someone who has sort of, is willing to be thoughtful uh, talk through things with you can bring something, whether through their experience, their way of seeing the world, their problem solving skills can bring something to the table for you. Even if it's just encouragement sometimes. 
my wife is my mentor sometimes, you know, my wife can bring a lot more than sometimes, but sometimes like she's a great problem solver and she's brings a great perspective, but sometimes she's just like, you'll figure this out. And like, just hearing that, like, and knowing that she believes that and it's not just platitudes, like it's pretty, can help. Yeah. Priceless to have someone in your corner all the time for sure. Totally. Totally. Um, so this is one that uh, I picked up from Tim Ferriss uh, before we get into several others from Tim Ferriss that I stole. Um, <laughs> hey, that good? Good question. He's so good with his questions. I love Yeah, him. so good. So good. What general advice would you give to a smart, driven college student about to enter the real world? And uh, is there any advice that they should ignore? Oh, good. Um, good, good question. Um, Smart, driven college student, what advice would I give them? Uh, you know, there's lots of advice, and it's and most of it's already been said. <laughs> just, uh, but you know, what? I think like I think the kind of things that I would that I would say that just uh, maybe a little perspective have given me is one. I would just tell them to really uh, focus on the journey um, over the destination. And what I mean by that is like, um, I think that like ambitious people we're very destination focused we're very outcome focused we want to hit the next milestone um and what i've learned through my own failures is is like sometimes that milestone is not going to appear it's not going to it's not going to happen like when i this i told you that i had this other startup called unbird that like i've uh, luckily i was able to find a way to continue with it and there's still some value there but i i i'm more for all intents and purposes i failed with that business um and that was like a year and a half of my life, maybe a little bit more. And um, that was hard. Like just thinking about the number of hours that I just like grinded. Um, yeah, probably that. knowing that you, um, with your background and your uh, toolbox that you bring to the table, you could have made probably a lot more money. Yeah, the opportunity cost was tremendous. You put in a ton of hours um, working for yourself there. So that's that's a huge sacrifice. So that, but that's, that's kind of what, like when that, when, uh, when that business more or less failed, um, it was right around the time I had my second kid, like it was just a very like poignant life experience, which got me thinking, and I'd already been thinking down this train of thought a little bit, but it was, that's the one that really nailed the home where it's like, if you're not happy with what you're like, the way I kind of frame it in my mind is like, assume I just fail at everything I did. Will I regret spending my time this way? And if you can't answer, if you can't answer no to that question, if the answer is yes, like you should probably do something else. Like think about it, like for someone who's thinking about going into doing a startup after school or thinking about going to consulting, like imagine you go into consulting and you get fired after two years and you don't get your offer to return. They don't sponsor you to go to business school. Uh, would you be happy doing that job? And if the answer is no, then don't do it. Because the thing is, like a lot of times, like like you can't control, like you can try your best, but a lot of times there's things in life you just can't control and you're going to fail. And so I think I think where a lot of ambitious people get tripped up is when they do fail, it's sort of, whoa, what happened? And you and they sort of think about like, oh man, regrets because you've been chasing milestones instead of focusing on the journey. And so the way I think about it now is I love what I'm doing with my startup right now. I love what I'm learning. I love working with my team. And so if this startup fails, like I'll be, I'll be fine. Like, sure. I want it to be big, but I won't regret it because I love every day and I love the people I'm working with and what we're trying to accomplish. 
And so I'll be happy with that. But I can't say I'd always, I've always felt that way. There's been times in my life where I've worked on things that like, frankly, it was, I was chasing an outcome. And when that failed, it was like, man, that was a lot of life. Like life's too short to sort of just chase outcomes that may or may not materialize unless you're in a place where you're enjoying the journey. Yeah, that's good. I feel like for the, the idea of enjoy the journey is good advice for the person who whose default mode is 100% outcome focused. It's like, Hey, enjoy the journey, but they're going to, you don't have to tell them to focus on the outcome because they're already thinking it right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you preface the question with ambitious people. Yeah. Yeah. There may be uh, people who are in college. They're like, Oh, you know, sometimes they're a little too much about enjoying the journey. journey, And then they wind up in a uh, sub sub optimal outcome. Yeah. And it's like, Oh man, now I can't uh, do any things I want to do anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> How's that? Yeah, I was actually talking to someone pretty close, uh, pretty close to me about this recently, where he's like, I don't really know what I was doing. He just was like, I didn't have a vision for where I wanted to be. And I was just kind of, you know, taking life, enjoying it. And now it's like, now I have a kid about to have my second kid. And like, like, how the freak am I going to provide for my family? <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah. so there's definitely the flip side of that, too. But I think, you know, if someone for a lot of the people who are sort of thinking about getting into sculpting, being super ambitious, that's what I would say. Um, among other things, there's probably other pieces of advice, but that's something that I've been thinking a lot no, about. No, that's a good one. Good one. All right, uh, let's talk about fun. What are your What are your hobbies? What do you like to do for fun when you got some time? Um. Yeah. Can I actually give one more piece of advice? Yeah. Something else. Do. Something else I've been thinking about. So, like, uh, one other thing that I would that like. I think the other thing that drives a lot of people in in that cast again, we could we could recast our. It's all about your cust- Who's your customer? And given what your customer needs. And so we're defining our customer as like the hyper ambitious sort of go-getter type A achievers. So I'm giving this advice to that type of person. The other piece of advice that I also think is super important, I think these people are motivated a lot by uh, failure and desire to avoid failure. Um, and so like, and and failure kind of in, in manifests it in different ways. In different ways, it's like not getting into the business school you want to get into, not getting into the consulting firm you want to get into. Like these are all fears that drive these types of people and drove me. Um, and uh, it also can be smaller fears, like, you know, saying something stupid in a meeting or or whatever it might be. And um, I think like I think like my my advice to to that type of person, which was myself several years ago, is like. Go fail like faster and and just like find a way to let, there's we could talk a lot about how do you sort of and I have some thoughts, but not to say I know the answers, but like I have a lot of thoughts of like getting rid of that fear of failure. But I just think. I just think being motivated by the fear of failure is like the worst motivation. Like it, it works. It's probably very effective. Like that fear of failure drove me like super hard in college and like drove me to get my high GPA and drove me all those things. But like, I don't think it's like a healthy motivation. And I think it's like a, it's, it's probably like, it's not the best motivation. Like you should be motivated by passion, by a desire to achieve, by um, desire to have a good journey, by desire to have impact, to contribute. Like those are things that like, you should be motivated. Fear of failure is like a terrible motivation. And I think, I think like people don't realize it enough. And I think the sooner you're sort of liberated from that fear of failure, you can find your voice. You can, uh, go on swerves, you know, like explore, go on non-traditional paths. And that's where like, I think the magical life really starts to come. Hmm. Insightful. Thank you for inserting that. That is, I'm glad we included that into the conversation. Yeah. No worries. A lot about, um, 
the term fail faster as like almost cliche to where when I'm not thinking about it in the, the context of, of failing in general, just like, Oh yeah, we're going to go fail. fail. I'm like, I, I don't know, man. I'm not deep. I'm not a deep thinker, you know, but I'm just like, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah. Yeah. The fail fast thing is interesting. Cause I feel like it's one of those, there's all these things that sort of get into the common lexicon that I don't think like mean what people think they mean. Yeah. Um, like the fail fast company. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like MVP. It's like once a big company starts saying MVP, you know, they're not like using that term correctly. (laughs) It's like, we got to build an MVP guys. And it's like, not at all. But anyway, um, sort of, I think that's kind of the fail fasting. Like, I think it means a lot of different things and people use it. I think at its core, what it sort of means is uncover the, the risks that will cause you to fail as fast as possible. And don't be afraid to to face those. And 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 like sometimes like when you're doing something, you you want to sort you sort of have like this like ostrich mentality, where you sort of bury your head in the sand. You don't want to learn the things that are going to prove you wrong. I think that's what the fail fast mentality should mean. Some people use it to mean that like you know if you're going to fail, just like quit and be done fast and like move on to the next one. That one I don't really like because like when you start a business, you take commitments on to people, and so. Uh, yeah, that's that's what I how I've always perceived it because I've never had the the background on the subject of you know the, this context around failure and what is really meant by that. Yeah, blow it up and you know if it works great, if it doesn't, not. But I'm like, dude, that's people's money and you got like employees to come work for you and sacrifice it. So I don't necessarily love some of the some of the way that idea is, is used. But anyway, we digress. Back to hobbies. I think we're going to. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, what are what are your hobbies? I know you're a busy guy. You're a young dad, at, working at a, as an entrepreneur. How often do you get to do your hobbies? Um, anything you wish you were doing more of, as far as hobbies? Yeah, I think my three main hobbies outside of my business and my family, or and, and they're all sort of integrated. But for m- myself, are I like to read, still read a lot. Um, I love reading. I do uh, sports, and primarily now my main sport is ultimate frisbee. <laughs> I play okay. that. Two, I play that two times a week, Tuesdays and Saturdays, for a couple hours, which is just a great way for me to stay in shape. Um, yeah. And then the third thing is politics is definitely still a kind of a passion slash hobby of mine. I was gonna say I don't remember if when we were in college if you if we had had a conversation on like politics or maybe you told me you were interested in politics or if I just saw you and thought that guy's got his stuff together and I'd buy what he's selling. And I just kind of associated you with like politics. But so if, if politics is your hobby, what are you like following it or getting involved and um, you know, doing things? Tell me about that. Yeah. So to be clear, I don't really like love politics in the sense that like, I don't love this current toxic environment we're in where there's two teams and you hate the people on the other team. Like I'm not a huge fan of that, but I love governance and like thinking about society and and policy and how do you create a better place for us all to live in um these are things i'm really interested in intellectually and so that's when i say i like politics i'm interested in i i do find some elements of like the strategy of politics also interesting but i don't love our political environment right now so you're not just trolling people on twitter all day no no. sometimes like sometimes i'll see something angers me and i'll respond but uh (laughs) i'm not trolling people no no so my so the way it sort of manifested itself differently um Right now, uh, it's it's become a little bit more targeted. Um, you know, in the past, I've done things like be a state delegate in Utah. Um, I, I I read a lot about it. Um, uh, read books like I'll typically read a book at once every couple months that's politically oriented to learn more about politics. But um, yeah. right now, most of my energies are going into one specific initiative, which is 
we're trying uh, very early days of this, but trying to get final five ranked choice voting primaries passed in Utah. So that's where most of my uh, side hobby with politics is going. And w- what does that mean for someone who's not? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. So what it means, so right now, the Just way... asking for a friend, by the way. <laughs> okay, yeah, so for a friend. Um, yeah, so right now, when your senator or your uh, state legislature or even your governor or your uh, um, House of Representatives, what they're, when they face a problem or face a vote, uh, the, what do you think they're at? What do you think they should be asking? Like, what's the question, they, the operative question when they're facing like a vote or a decision or something? Just putting you on the spot. Um, I mean, I'd be thinking, what happens if I vote for this? What happens if I don't vote for this? What are the consequences and then unintended consequences of any you know legislation? Yeah, exactly. So they should be asking, you know, what's the impact of this legislation? What's it going to have? What impacts are it going to have on my constituents? What impact is it going to have on the country at large? What's the right thing to do to build a better country and a society, right? But yeah. it's not what they ask. You know what they ask? They ask, will this get me through my primary? <laughs> like, yeah. that's really what they ask. They're asking, like, if I vote this way, will Mitch McConnell uh, primary me <laughs> and I'll lose my the seat? Senate, that's- the Republican leader of the Senate, uh, for those who aren't familiar with Mitch McConnell, yeah, Republican leader said. Anyway, and, and I'm not picking him out. It also goes uh, on but, the. But on yeah, the, someone the higher ups in the party will they support me um, down the road based on what I do right now? Correct. Yes. Or or will the primary voters support me? Like will so like Jeff Flake for example as an example he kind of came out and said some things that were not supportive of Donald Trump and you know like I'm not commenting on any of this. I'm just sort of saying what happened factually is he he then became unelectable because someone to the right of him ran and he so he he didn't run for re-election because he knew he wouldn't have won um and so i find that not to be a great way to govern a country where our elected officials instead of sort of asking what's best for the country they're instead asking like can i get through a primary um and so what we're trying to do and and there's a lot of people working on this is actually a great book that just came out on this subject um by michael porter by the way the guy who wrote five forces from our good old strategy program, him and, if, him and if Kristen. You're, if you're not in the world of strategy and consulting, maybe never heard of him. But um, for anyone uh, who's not familiar with him, he's sort of the grandfather of of strategy. Is that a good? Yeah, a of good business way strategy. Of That's a fair. Yeah, HBS strategy. professor, grandfather of strategy. Anyway, it's kind of funny. He's actually gotten to politics because he started. He did like he took the this five forces analysis, which is a framework you use to analyze industries, and he used it to analyze the political industry and basically he his conclusion is that like politics is a duopoly (laughs) and just like any duopoly was two duopoly of two parties republicans and democrats and just like any duopoly is their incentives and they act in a in a way to in a somewhat coordinated way to increase returns to themselves and not returns to the customer and in this case the customer is the voters so um so, so basically, what final five, uh, what final five primaries are is instead of having two partisan primaries, a Democrat and a Republican Party primary, you have a single primary. Anyone can participate, and the people who score the top five in that primary then advance to the general election. So the idea is to, um, and then ranked choice voting um, is basically instead of just a single vote that this is the person I want, you instead get to rank. You say I like this candidate first, this candidate oh, second, wow. this candidate third. And what that does basically is it allows the person with the deepest and the, the top five candidates with the deepest and broadest support to advance the general election. And 
anyway, lots of benefits to this, but the main benefit will be instead of right now we have two teams that are uh, incentivized to make their own voters super angry. People are voting not uh, not necessarily in support of their candidate, but out of fear uh, of the other side. Like right now, for example, like again, I'm not commenting. I, I want to say like political, but like uh, like what is happening descriptively is Donald Trump running for re-election. Instead of sort of his main voice, instead of sort of laying out articulate positive vision for our country, he's sort of attacking Joe Biden. And right, the reason why you do that is because you win elections by being very negative and attacking because of this sort of. Um, zero sum effect of our current election system but with ranked choice voting you win, you tend to win by trying to appeal the broadest set of voters and so you win by running positive elections that are articulating a positive vision um anyway so uh that's the idea positive uh, or or campaigns with a positive message lead to better outcomes uh well this is all theoretical we don't really know for exact but the the hope is that uh the hope is that you know it'll be less divisive for sure. Yeah. Uh, people will be more incentivized to solve problems um, because you, you'll win by solving problems and and having results to show your constituents instead of uh, coming back and saying, "Hey, I was ideologically pure to my primary voters." You know, it's just a different kind of criterion. Yeah. So yeah, that's what we're trying to get done in Utah. So what will the two big stakeholders that would have a lot to lose in that system be doing to block you from taking that and running with it? <laughs> We're like getting way off in left field on politics on this, but uh, yeah, we, maybe we should stop here before we, I don't know. Um, it's your podcast, man. What I will um, let you answer that if you want to, or just say uh, blink twice and we will um, <laughs> jump to another well, that's the challenge, right? And the reason why you can't pass election reform is because the people in the system have the most to lose. But uh, our our hope is to be able to run a voter referendum or a, a ballot. It's called a ballot measure, which is a citizen's initiative. That's our hope. Cool. I would love that. I remember uh, in the, my one like political science class that I took in college where they explained, I think it's some paradox or something, but when you have like winner take all, um, voting or representation that that um equates to only having two parties but if you have um representative share of the um vote then you can have like three or four parties and coalitions and stuff and so when i explained that i was like ah that's why we always have you know mm -hmm. republican or Democrat. you can't a third party never can quite get enough because it does feel like you're throwing away your vote you know yeah um, yeah people vote strategically and you want to you don't want to be the spoiler candidate right so if a third person got in this race right now everyone would be like ah, oh, i love him and i or her I, I love her and love to vote for her but i don't want biden to be president so i'm gonna vote for trump or i don't want trump to be president so i'm gonna vote for biden yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. With ranked choice voting, you would be like, okay, I'm going to rate this candidate as first, and then I'm going to rate this candidate as second, and so you can vote your conscience instead of trying to vote strategically. So there's ranked choice voting, and then what was the other concept you mentioned? Uh, it's called final five primary, final, final five. five open primaries. For people who this is a topic they're interested in and want to learn more about it, where could someone go? Is there like a national interest, or is this a uh, on a micro scale where you're currently working? Yeah, so I think, you know, this is something that I think a lot of, you know, I think people are just so tired of the outrage uh, industrial complex and just and just like the the exhausted, tired conversation of everyone being mad and people trying to play on our emotions. So I think a lot of people are like looking to change this. And so it's something that's having a moment. And I think there'll be a lot more momentum, hopefully, on this topic. 
and so what I would just point you to is I point you to this book by Catherine Gale and Michael Porter. It's called uh, let me pull up. We'll do it on the fly. Um, yeah, it's called. Let's see here. What's her book called? It's called. There's a paper called. It's really interesting. Called Why the Politics Industry is Failing America. It's an HBS paper. And then the book is called um, Harvard Business School for anyone not familiar. Yeah, Har- Harvard Business School. And then the book is called The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. Okay, that was a long one. Say that one one more time. <laughs> the Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy. There we go. That's um, There we go. I like, I like your platform of um, make the, you know, improve the system you know rather than focus on negatives and and uh and then scaring people into vote for someone and then the parties supporting each themselves um focus on getting things done and improving life for everyone so that's anyway. it exactly cool man thanks for sharing that i find that uh i personally find that interesting and if anyone else does now we can go check out that book um all right so speaking of books what is a book that you've given as a gift and why did you give it away? If you have given a book, otherwise, if not, <laughs> tell me about a book that uh, has influenced your life. So what's funny is that there is a book that we've given as a gift a lot, but it's like <laughs> so random and probably not something you want on this podcast. There's a, there's like the sex book that we give to like all of our Mormon friends that we're close to before they get married because it's like, I don't know. It's a lot. <laughs> if you've given away on multiple occasions rather than other books, it's important. So um, feel free to tell the world about it. There's yeah, at least just... six or seven people listening to this podcast, so it's not going to be. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. One day it's like one day like someone will find us like what the heck is he talking about? No. Uh, I mean, basically, in in some it's like uh, you know, uh, me, my wife and I sort of felt before we grew up in sort of we and we still are practicing. Mormons, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we kind of just felt like, man, no one told us like anything we needed to know about having a healthy, fulfilling sexual uh, partnership. And so we just kind of felt like we were sort of took us a long time to learn what we needed to learn there. And so we found this book that was uh, that was like very specific and, in, and informative, but at the same time sort of respectful. And we both felt comfortable, having come from that more conservative background, felt comfortable reading yeah. it, but it was still like super useful. And so We've given that to brothers and sisters-in-laws and stuff before they got married, so yeah. we felt like they could like. And that's the thing is like people are sort of scared to go like Google like how do I have better sex because if you're conserv if you're like from like a religious conservative tradition, yeah, maybe, you don't want a bunch of porn to pop yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so we found that book and it's been very helpful. Um, it's called The Marriage Bed, and uh, that's probably the book I've given as a gift more than any other gift, awkwardly enough. <laughs> Very important topic, and it's something where it's, it's about you know, dads. There can't be dads without you know healthy sexual. Life. I guess you yeah. can have dads without healthy sexual lives, but it's all part of the same thing. So there you go. It sort of somewhat connects to the topic. Yeah, yeah, and and for for anyone who's wondering, um, this is uh, someone of this faith, the that uh, Jeff mentioned, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, um, practicing that faith, you would not be uh, living together until married, and so that's right. Uh, still uh, a lot to figure out in in, uh, in that department right so a book could go a long way so yeah not only not living together but a, a, the devout members also sort of try to avoid having sex before marriage so right lots to figure out in that department <laughs> yeah yeah um 
Okay, so um, what would you say if the, if you think back on the last six months or a year, any purchase of $100 or less that has uh, positively impacted your life? Yeah, so this was one I didn't think I could answer, but I, but it came to my mind. So uh, I would say one is Grammarly, life-changing, fantastic really? app, yeah. Even for a really smart guy, I'm surprised. I don't know. I just think of Grammarly like, uh, I don't, you know, that's maybe uh, someone who really struggles with, with grammar. Maybe no, I do man. struggle with grammar <laughs> blindly and everyone's laughing when they get my emails. I don't know. No, no, no. But it's just like, you know, I mean, we all make typos or, or say things confusingly. And, and when you pay for the premium version, they, they're, they're like, so they're like, uh, I don't know, they call them like, uh, advanced errors or whatever uh, it's really nice like they point out all the time like it just lets me write emails with confidence and i don't feel like i have to read it like seven times without without you know because i used to like reread seven times because i didn't want to sound like an idiot i never thought i needed to read this seven times because <laughs> 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 mckenzie you know like mckenzie like they just terrify make you terrified of you know do not make a mistake in front of the client we are perfect yeah, so. yeah. no that's well it, it works man um Everybody feels that that's what they do. So how, uh, all right, next question. How has a failure or significant obstacle in your path set you up for later success? Uh, or in other words, maybe do you, do you have a favorite failure of yours? Anything you want to elaborate on there? Yeah. Um, favorite failure of mine would be, uh, you know, I can't say I loved the experience, but it's, you know, the, I, I have two favorite failures and I've sort of touched on one of them. I didn't touch on the other, but, um, First favorite failure was when um, I tried to go to business school. I applied to Harvard and HBS. I was like, I'm going to go into Harvard HBS and I'm going to get in. And I didn't get in to either, which was like huge blow to the ego. Um, you said Harvard and HBS? Sorry, sorry. Harvard and Stanford. So HBS and GSB. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, misspoke. Um, just applied to those two didn't get in apparently what well, that's why i didn't get in is because I, I must have put like <laughs> put harvard on my stanford application maybe that's maybe that's what happened um just kidding but oh, okay i was like did you really do that no no i didn't do that i'm that just kidding time where you want to read it seven times before yeah yeah no i definitely read that probably like 52 <laughs> times maybe more um uh but yeah so i mean i felt like i was had a strong application good you know good scores good background didn't get in it was really hard like it was tough and um you know, this was kind of to my point earlier, like fear of failure, having a traditional path, focusing on outcomes, like that was the path for me. It was like, you go to McKinsey, you have a little bit of experiment before, experience before McKinsey, then you go get a Harvard MBA, and then you don't really think beyond the MBA, but like those are like yeah. the steps. And then like I didn't get in, um, and that was really tough, like it really tough, like kind of helped, made me doubt myself and my worth and because I had been sort of marking my worth by these sort of external achievements. Um, hmm. And that experience like taught me, you know, helped me kind of have a life swerve where I instead my wife and I, instead of going to business school, my wife and I decided to go to Uganda, an incredible experience out there. Um, you know, I know something funny. My wife and I had been trying to have a kid for like two years and we go to Uganda and it's like two months after being there, boom, she gets pregnant. Or maybe it was four months after being there, but it was like it was just crazy. Like we actually were we were like were hesitant to move to Uganda because like we couldn't see uh, the our fertility fertility doctor anymore. Uh, 
And so we were really worried about that, but we just felt like we should do it. And like, boom, get pregnant. It's like, man, Mother Africa, man. It's like, who knows what it is? Like, yeah, maybe some good food over there. Who knows? Yeah, it's like stopped eating all the crap we ate here and like some lots of veggies. Who knows what it is? Uh, but that was that was pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, so um, in short, like not getting to business school, went to Africa, had that amazing life experience, brought my wife and I together better. We had us like, you know, changed our view of the world. Um, put me on the path that I'm on now doing startups, which I'm very grateful I'm on this path. Like if I had gone to business school, I would have been two years in business school, probably two years back in McKinsey to pay off the business school. Right. Two years in McKinsey. I don't know if I'm going to start a business now at that point in my life. Like it's you pretty get hard. You making, you know, that yeah. it's tough. Yeah, totally. So I'm grateful for that failure. It's, it was a, it was hard, tough pill to swallow, but it it what it did is it, one, allowed me to kind of step away from this traditional path of success. And then two, allowed me to like not be driven by the fear fear of failure anymore and and not be driven by prestige anymore. I still am. I'd be lying if that's not in my it's not in my psyche somewhere, but I just I don't think it's my primary driver anymore. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a human and um that's that's um yeah. Um all right, another one again. We're right in the middle of a block of questions that I stole straight up um without even thinking twice about it from Tim Ferriss. So uh I thought this was a cool one. If you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, metaphorically speaking, getting a message out to millions or billions of people, what would it say and why? And it could be, you know, a few words or something longer, if you know, maybe a paragraph. Hmm, interesting. Um So uh, I had I had I had two thoughts come to mind. <laughs> um, one one billboard would say would basically say um, no one does wrong deliberately. Um, and uh, this is something that like I've just been thinking a, a lot about. Where it's like you know I think this kind of goes a little bit to the polarization conversation we were saying we were talking about earlier. Where it's like. I just feel like we're at a time right now where we're just mad a lot. Other people, we think other people are stupid and they're wrong. And, uh, and I just think like, uh, I just think like this idea that no one does wrong willingly is a really interesting idea where it's like, everyone thinks they're doing the right thing and no one wakes up in the morning and is like, I'm going to be an idiot and a jerk. (laughs) Or maybe some people do, but I would say the vast, 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 vast majority of people don't. And, um, yeah, exactly. And I think like when when someone does something that really makes you mad, I think just sort of like recognizing that they think they're doing what's right. And instead of like just getting mad back and yelling back at them, instead of being curious, like, okay, why are they doing it that way? Like what in their experience, what in their values? Uh, and I think, I just think that's like, that idea is just really powerful. And it's something that I've been working a lot on lately. Um, you know, John Lewis uh, just recently died, Representative John Lewis just recently died. And, um, you know, sadly, I probably wasn't as familiar with his life as I should have been, but I've been learning about it lately since he passed away. And uh, one of the things that, like, I find so inspiring was just, like, this idea of, like, radical nonviolence that they believed in and um, and that he lived and practiced where he literally had people, like, basically like, put out cigarette butts in his neck um, and beat him up. Whoa. And, yeah, yeah, and, like, and like basically like his belief was the the whole whole idea of like radical nonviolence was like 
when someone does that, you see them as the victim of a system of sort of of injustice and like and and tragedy just as much as you're a victim of of tragedy. Um, and so that's that's been an idea I've been thinking around about a lot lately. That's pretty inspiring. You know what? That that's something that uh, my wife and I talk about when you know, like if someone, even if it's just like when you're driving and they make a jerk move or something, it's like yeah. I feel bad that they're having such a crappy day right now. I doubt they're a, a mean person that hates the world and really was trying to piss me off right now. They're probably maybe they just got a bad phone call and, or they're rushing home. Like I feel bad that they're in a bad spot and that they felt like that was a good move to take at that time. You know, um, yeah, it's kind of like exactly. helped me calm that mentality, helped me calm down, man. I'm glad I didn't have to think that I can't, I don't know if I uh, have the strength to think that way. <laughs> if someone put out a cigarette on my neck, I'd be ready to choke them. Yeah, I know. I know. It's pretty amazing. The other thing that I was, the other thing that came to mind, and I'm not sure there might be better ones I've had more time to think about, but the other one that I would say, and, and maybe there's a more, we'd have to get a marketer to like say, how do you say this with the right punchy copy, but something around the lines of like, what have you been wrong about today? Um, just like a question mark, like dot milk, like, what have you been wrong about today? Or like, like, where are you wrong? Um, yeah. and the reason why I think that is like, and maybe it's like the general idea there is just like, I think, um, that's something that I just think we need a lot more. We need a lot more humility in, in this world. Like, and that's one thing that I'm very glad I did a startup for is like, I think I was a lot more confident in my judgment before I did a startup because I think at big companies, you're sort of, and you probably actually have better experience with this as a salesperson. Cause I think salespeople are sort of the most directly tied to, uh, results in businesses, but when you work in a big corporation, there's just like a very calm, like convoluted uh, feedback loop between your decisions and, and and results. And it can be really easy to spin narratives and to think you're doing really smart things. And so, unless you're like the CEO, right? It's like, you know, it's just, I think it's really easy to sort of think you're really smart when like you're sort of a little disconnected from the outcomes. But when you're, when you're a startup founder, it's like, man, when you're wrong today, you see it tomorrow um all the time and you just realize how often you're wrong and that sort of humility goes not only from like your business judgment to your political beliefs to just your life and you start to be really curious about like what am i wrong about like why am i wrong what do, what do i need to do to learn faster that i'm wrong faster so that i can update my mental models of the world and so i don't know i just think like that kind of thinking could be really helpful we could try to understand each other a lot more instead of yelling at each other yeah I love what you say that because I, again, I think of uh, experiences in my life and it's almost the the reverse where when I was at a startup in my twenties, I was a, I guess a joiner, you could say like, um, and I mm. had a defined role and I was doing, you know, leading the marketing and sales and then eventually the CX, um, at least with the marketing and sales, it's like, I was, I was crushing it, you know, and I was like on top of the world, like I know everything in my twenties, you know, and I was very overconfident but um one thing that i've loved about going to, to work at a big company i've been introduced to so many people who know so much where i'm like man i really don't know much at all and there's a lot and i'm okay and comfortable knowing that i don't need to know everything or be the best like there's a whole world out there of amazingly competent people 
um, who know more than me. And it's great to be able to reach out to someone in humility and say like, here's what I'm doing. Like, what would you do if you're in my shoe? You know, just asking questions and like tapping into others. Um, I've loved that, um, uh, about working at a big company. So I've been, it's become, it became painfully clear to me that I don't know very much <laughs> when I was surrounded by a bunch of people at Cisco. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, I think we can learn that lesson in lots of different ways, and that's cool. Yeah, there's this one quote I heard that was really stuck with me. It's like, we should switch our default from convincing others that we're right to convincing ourselves we're wrong. Definitely, yeah. Or at least be asking yourself, you know, and yeah, exactly. how could I possibly be wrong? There's, and surely I can, you know, imagine there could be a scenario where I'm I'm not right, you know? Yeah, totally. Think of one. You got you need to work on your imagination. <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, on time, time check. We're like, we've been. I'm okay. In. I got. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm okay. We can kind of. I'll try to be a little quicker, but maybe like another ten. Whatever you want to do. I've got my dog outside. Let's let's um transition to uh to yes, Sally. Okay, but you gotta be in bed. I'll come cuddle with you in just a second. I'm gonna finish talking. Okay. My my daughter's just like, hey, will you come cuddle with me? <laughs> This is like, um, this is not what dad conversations should be stopping you. I shouldn't be stopping you from <laughs> with your dog. It's all good, man. I do it every other night, so it's fine. Um, all right, so briefly, tell me a little about your family. What's one thing you feel like you're nailing as a parent? I don't think any parent feels like they've got everything figured out, mm. but what's one thing where you'd say, you know what, I feel good about, I do that really well? Uh. So just quick primer on my family. I have my me, my wife, and two kids. We have a three-year-old daughter named Allison and a five-month-old son named Alex. And uh, one thing I'm nailing is uh, obviously <laughs> it kind of feels weird saying I'm nailing it because, like, like you said, I think a lot of times as parents you're just like, gosh, I don't want to screw these beautiful humans up. Um, I think one thing I'm nailing is just like uh, kind of showing unconditional acceptance and love to my kids, like um and 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 just being pretty kind with to them like uh when i was at brigham young university uh i listened to a talk um i think it was from elder ballard where he talked about his father and elder ballard is like one of the leaders of our church and he talked about his father growing up he never heard his father yell at his wife or his or himself or his brothers and sisters like ever raise his voice with them and like mm-hmm. from my not to say my dad like yelled a lot or my parents yelled a lot, but like they definitely, you know, got angry and sometimes lost their temper. And there was times in where as a kid, he kind of felt a little scared of dad. Um, and sort of, I made a commitment back then. Like I, it didn't seem possible to me when I heard that, I was like, no way. But then I thought about it, like, why not? Why can't you just choose that? So I made that commitment that I was never, I would never lose my temper with my kids or, uh, with my wife. And I've done pretty good with that so far. That's one thing I'm nailing. Whether or not that has an impact on my kids, I don't know, but that's something that oh, I I'm sure have I nailed. I will. Um, what's something you're, you're learning lately, um, or something that you're doing better at now than maybe a couple years ago as a parent, as a parent, um, that's a good question. Um, new, new approaches or realizations or just sort of philosophies at how you, you look at parenting or approach certain situations. Yeah, I think, um, I think something I think something that uh that I've that I'm trying to do a little differently as parenting is like um 
instead of giving my giving my my recently started showing a lot of curiosity um you know asking me like oh what's this why does that why like she'll ask a lot of questions she started open it's just recently in the last several months and initially like when she started asking all these questions like oh cool i can teach her all these things and i started telling her answers um i've started pulling back from that a little bit and instead of instead like first when she asked a question i first just always encourage her curiosity like oh man that's a great question like awesome let me think like i just i don't always do that i'm not always so pedantic but like i try to make a consistently encourage like just to tell her like curiosity is actually more important than having the right answer oftentimes um and then secondly is like i ask her what do you think like before i give her my my answer smart i like that i might borrow that one yeah it's been good and the other thing that the other thing that i'm uh the other thing that um that i think i'm i'm uh trying to be a little bit better at my my son than i was with my daughter is um i read this study about how like uh i have to pull the specifics but basically the idea is like is that like after about a minute of your kids trying to like look at you and get attention it's called like dead eye or something like that where it's like they they like observe infants with parents who are like on their phones or on the screens and like um after a like kids are just wired to like once they see you to like engage and that's how they sort of develop theory of mind and social attachments and all these things and so like but if like you don't respond they sort of like just stop responding and so that that sort of made me sad when i read about that so like okay i'm gonna not like if my kid's trying to get my attention i'm gonna give them my attention and then like if i need to focus i'm gonna like go give them someone else or or like not let them just see me ignoring them man every parent's gotta think hard about that one it is tough I know. I, I mean, I'm not perfect for sure. I'm making. No, yeah, no, no one is. Um, okay. Um, when you're feeling overwhelmed or having a bad day, um, what do you do? Any any thoughts out there for you know someone who's listening to this, another young dad? Um, what do you do when you're having a hard time or feeling overwhelmed? Um, oftentimes I'll just go running or like it used to be the gym, go swimming. Like not during now during COVID, but like just go go running um better if i go running luckily living in utah you know i'm pretty close to the mountains so uh there's been a couple times where just like literally just driven up the mountains and ran up a trail just to get some perspective and that's been really helpful therapeutic which probably should do it more such a good state for outdoorsy people man oh dude it's fantastic it's really fantastic Uh, um all right something you're looking forward to in the next 12 months aside from being done with this podcast episode (laughs) What am I looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the presidential election being over. Yeah. Whatever, whatever happens, I'm just like so over it, dude. It's like, what the heck? Yeah. Uh, no, I'm just joking. But what am I really looking forward to? I'm looking forward to, um, I'm really looking forward to um, what's happening with my startup. Like, you know, I think, I think there's going to be, I think 12 months from now, it's going to be pretty awesome. Um, I'm really excited to see how far I make it there and the journey over the next 12 months. And then I'm, also excited for my my son to start talking you know that's always really fun when kids start talking oh, yeah. he's six months now so he'll probably start you know probably be saying things here and there yeah i mean i just love that i mean every kid every stage is amazing but i think the most amazing stage is when like every way until they start talking you're always trying to like guess right but once yeah, they start true. verbalizing their needs i love that and yeah, my toddler's going through that right now. Um, okay, what is a good cause you wish more people knew about? Oh, I already said this one. Front five primaries and ranked choice voting. Um, yep, okay. Let's go on. 
Okay. Um, remind us again, what is your startup? Um, where can people reach you or learn about who, who could benefit from um, knowing what your startup is? And then for anyone who's interested in uh, learning more about you or um, following, following Jeff, where can they find you? Yeah. So um, for the startup, it's gerbil, G-I-R-B-I-L, gerbil. Um, and it's a, it's a tool, gerbil.com. It's a tool for remote teams. So, if, you know, if, if you're a remote team and you want to, you want to try sort of another way to collaborate, um, that doesn't involve typing a bunch on Slack or, or scheduling meetings, you should check out gerbil. Um, and then for me, uh, find me on LinkedIn, just search for Jeff Whitlock. Um, probably will pop up, especially if you search Jeff Whitlock with gerbil, G I R B I L. Um, also on Twitter, Jeffrey Whitlock, and yeah, just feel free to reach out. I'm like, uh, I like to love meeting, connecting with people. Happy to, happy to chat. I actually do this thing, which was, uh, which I actually got from a book, an idea from a book, which has been awesome. As I do office hours, so um, I have two hours every Saturday blocked, blocked out just to chat with people. So you can, if you want to chat more, let's get some office hours going. That is awesome. Yeah, the, um, I've in, very much enjoyed talking with you, and I'm confident that others will get a ton of value from talking with you one-on-one so thanks man thank you for doing this um time to go cuddle with your daughter <laughs> okay and tell her that i am very sorry um but that in my opinion uh, a lot of people are going to be grateful to listen to what you've just shared so um thanks for the time it was a blast and uh, we'll have to keep in touch more than once every uh eight or nine years eight years <laughs> <laughs> thanks sean i appreciate it it's great chatting with you too good, good questions thanks man see ya